Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you have your Bibles, let's open to Ezekiel 16. I uh, used to think that I was good friends with Tony and David, and at least relatively new friends with Dr. Aiken, and then they asked me to write a commentary on Ezekiel, and I realized we'd never been friends at all. I know some guys come to chapel with a polished sermon. This may be a train wreck, but at least we'll hit it full speed. And what I counted on was that very few people had preached from Ezekiel 16, at least this semester. Uh, And you'll soon find out they didn't ask me to write the commentary on Ezekiel because of my prowess as a Hebrew scholar. Sorry, Dr. Mosley. But I can write Psalm 23, at least a portion of it. Ms. Mor Ladavid, Adonai Roi, Lo, Exar. Like that. So, just. And that helped me absolutely none with Ezekiel. So, let me ask you a couple questions as we start. Have you ever felt like your ability to sin is greater than God's ability to save? Have you ever felt like you've overextended your sin daily limit with those mercies that renew every day? You get to about 1140 and you're like, ooh, I'm testing it. And that's a.m., not p.m. Have you ever felt like you've done it now and your sin's going to cause God to finally say, I'm done with you. I quit. Have you ever felt like God abandoned you in your sin and left you to experience the full consequences? If you haven't felt that, I know the people you shepherd have. And if that's the case, the book of Ezekiel is a great book for us. Ultimately, God will not leave us because He left His Son. Ultimately, He will not forsake us because He forsook His Son. And the book of Ezekiel is certainly a picture that God always has a purpose for disciplining His children. But He always provides when disciplining His children. You open in chapter 1 and God provides His prophets. God provides His Word. God provides His hand, which gets us to one more overarching theme. God is always present through the disciplining of His children. That's why He would say in Isaiah 43 to His people, you know why the wave will not overcome you and the fire will not burn you even in discipline? Because I will sustain you even there. There's always a purpose. Here's my fear. I feel that we are more amazed with God's discipline than His grace. I fear that somewhere along the way, We've begun to ask, well, how could this happen to me? I'm so good. Rather than asking, I think, the better question, oh, God, why are you so good to we who are so bad? Why are you so good to us? Why are you so faithful when we're not? I had one of my members of my church send me a text last week, and he said, why in the Old Testament does God warn and warn and warn and warn? I said, because he's slow to anger, and he's patient, and it's a grace to us. God's discipline is always a grace, and that's what you'll see in Ezekiel. 
But as we get into particularly Ezekiel 16, I think a good title for Ezekiel 16 is the Gospel according to Ezekiel. And if there's anything that for our pastor friends, for our campus ministers, for those that you minister to, there's nothing they need more than for you not to go past the Gospel, but to go deeper into it. And that we would steadily have our hearts amazed by the Gospel. If we're going to love God passionately and others rightly, why would we want to do either of those things? Because Jesus said those are the two most important things in all the world. So if we're going to love God passionately and others rightly, then we must meditate on the cross constantly. And this morning, Ezekiel 16 certainly provides that opportunity. Matt Redman wrote these words. He said, Who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. You, O Lord, have made away the great divide you heal. For when our hearts were far away, your love went further still. Johnston, long before Redmond, wrote this simple tag, Grace that is greater than all our sin. Paul prayed a prayer long before Johnston or Redmond, and he just said that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. And there's nowhere that's more evident than in this text. I do want to be honest with you. I learned, in, in, particularly in doctoral work, admit your biases from up front. I will preach a Christ-centered exposition from Ezekiel 16. And to those guys that opposed Christ-centered homiletics, it just sounds like you want less of Jesus in your sermons. And because Jesus says, it's all about me, I'm going to go with his hermeneutic. But thanks anyway, Dr. Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser and Dr. Mosley and I team teach one of our seminars, uh, seminars together. And Dr. Kaiser believes the Bible is meant to be read forward only and not backward. And the Old Testament stands on itself. It's true, it does, but we'd all be Jews. So I'm grateful that we can look at Ezekiel 16. And when this ends in a breathtaking way... And instead of abandoning his people, he atones them, atones for them. We know how. More importantly, we know who. Jesus. So may we never be ashamed to have the mystery that's been revealed proclaimed. Would you stand with me? Let's read verse 15 verses of this passage. I'm reading from the ESV. In verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing with a fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Father, we thank you for the privilege to study this text. We are mindful today that there are those in our world still today who do not have this passage or any passage in their language. And God, we pray that you would continue to send out workers to the harvest, just as we did this week, Father David and Melissa Smith, on their way to Papua New Guinea, even today, Father. We pray for every travel grace as they go to work with Wycliffe and to see people hold your word who've never held your word, that they may behold you, Father, rightly. And what a glorious text for us to consider. We've sung, Father, Rock of Ages. Nothing do we bring. Brokenness, that's what we bring to you. And yet, Father, your love is steadfast. We go away, and we go away, and we go away, and you refuse to leave us. So, Father, what we need more than anything is not just an example of exposition. Father, we need our hearts touched by the gospel. We need to be reminded afresh of how awful we are and how good you are. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit and your word, speak to us. Please don't just inform us, Father. Transform us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You're going to find that at the beginning of Ezekiel 16, at the end of Ezekiel 16, Israel is really in the same place. They need God alone to save them. There's nothing that they can do for themselves. And without God's intervening, it's certain death in both the beginning and the end. There are a few truths that I want to teach you from Ezekiel 16. I apologize. These aren't all alliterated, so try to bear with me. Truth number one is that without God, we are helpless, hopeless, and left for dead. Without God, we are helpless, hopeless, and left for dead. There is a slight alliteration in these opening verses in 1 through 5. You will see that Jerusalem, representative of Israel, is both abandoned and abhorred. That means hated. They are abandoned and they are abhorred. And without God, we are in the same boat, left, helpless and hopeless. Four years ago in Florida, an 18-year-old girl walked into an abortion clinic to terminate her pregnancy. Three days later, she came back and was prepped for the procedure, but the doctor was delayed and the woman went into labor and she delivered the baby alive. One of the owners of the clinic then took the baby and placed it in a biohazard bag and threw it out with the trash. A year ago in New Jersey, where we've just been challenged to go for the sake of the gospel, and I pray that many of you would, in New Jersey a year ago, a couple claimed to have a stillborn baby in their apartment and they subsequently threw it in the trash. Prior to this, the mother had been seen seeking an abortion. Do you know what the punishment is for throwing a stillborn, in theory, baby in the trash? At least in New Jersey, they paid $125 and were sentenced to 25 hours of community service. These babies were unwanted. Their parents had no desire for them and they were discarded with the trash. 
I've been in the operating room for all four of our children's deliveries. Uh, Tara's had to have a C-section each of those times, and I go through the same procedure. I hate her having to be sliced open, and I try to comfort her. Uh, The other part is I try not to vomit. I try to comfort her. Vomiting would not be helpful in that situation or hygienic. So I'm like, Jesus, take the wheel. Please (laughs) help me. Help me here. But I go through the same moments of waiting, waiting to hear their first cry, waiting to hear that first breath. And then when they do, I weep. And then all I want to do is hold that baby and protect that baby and want that baby. There's never been a single time I've ever not wanted that baby. And God begins with reminding Israel here, you know what, when Jerusalem, you think you're something that's great, when you were first born, no one wanted you. Paul would say in the New Testament, I came from a right lineage and a right heritage. I counted all rubbish, but I came from the right place. God reminds Jerusalem, you came from the wrong parents and the wrong place. You were born in Canaan, Jerusalem. And I don't know how you are. I always love this line. It says, your father was an Amorite. At the end of verse 3, your mother a Hittite. If you ever get in a, you know, I appreciate a good your mama joke every now and then. And so just drop that one on them one day. You know, be like, your mama was a Hittite. Drop the mic and walk off, you know. And they're like, I don't know what that means. You're like, I don't either. But God said it wasn't good. You see, sometimes we forget where we came from and sometimes we want to forget where we came from. Either way, Jerusalem didn't have the beginning that you would brag about. So they were born in Canaan to pagan parents. That's what he says in verse 3. And then they were thrown out, hated, left for dead. He says, your cord was not cut there in verse 4. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field because you were hated. No one did the smallest things for you at all. What happens to a baby who is thrown out into a field with no clothes, no protection, and no medical attention They die. That's what happens. And without God, there would be no Jerusalem. There would be no people of Israel. And just as Jerusalem's beginnings were not that great, neither were ours. Whatever it takes for us to remember that without God, we were helpless, hopeless, and left for dead. There's one imperative as you get through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. There's one imperative that Paul comes to, and it's this word, remember. Remember that at one time you were alienated. You were separated from the promises. You were cut off. And then he says, you were hopeless. We don't ever want to forget Colossians 1, that we were evil, alienated, doing evil, separated. And it's Him who reconciles us. Or as Paul would write to the church at Corinth, who were you when God came to you? You were not of much accord. So may we never be like Jerusalem, be like, well, of course He came to us. We were awesome. May we always be like, why would you ever care for us? We were awful. So this chapter begins, and there they are. And if God doesn't do something, there are no more verses. Ezekiel 16 ends. And that's why we should always be staggered. The verse continues. There's more. God intervenes. Truth number two, God's love for His people is not only extravagant and undeserved, but also transforming. 
Truth number two is that God's love for his people is not only extravagant and undeserved, but also transforming. Watch what happens in verse 6. When I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I love that all it takes for this field to go from a place of death to a place of life is God's word. That's all it took. And it hasn't changed. If you've not read Jason Meyer's book, Preaching, as he traces through God's Word and what God does, even now sustaining all things by His powerful Word, and that's never changed. The reason any of you and I ever came to life is because He passed by and said, Live! We've heard the Gospel Word, and we've responded, and He he speaks. And so He says, Live! And I love this. He's not obligated to do that. No one is forcing him to do that. That's the beauty of Ephesians 1. He said, I took counsel with him myself. I chose to set my affections upon you. To love. God made a choice. He wasn't coerced. God was not obligated to save them and He's never been obligated to save us, which is why we should always be staggered. Right? And so He says, I said live. And then He said, I said to you, live. In your blood, live. And so not only do we see them abandoned and abhorred, but here we see them adopted. We see them adopted. When a child was claimed in the birth fluid by another, then it could never be reclaimed by its parents. And here's what's staggering. God knows what saying live to Jerusalem is going to cost him because one day he'll have to say die to his own son. Right? So here he's adopting. And many parents have no idea. I have no idea what Arabella and... Adelaide and Adoniram and Alistair are going to cost me one day. I'm sure that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine shooters, their parents had no idea what it would cost them to have those children. But God the Father has always known what it would cost Him to do this. So here's the question. Why does God do this? Why does He say to them live? Why does He make them flourish there in verse 7 like a plant of the field? Why does He do this? Is it because He looks down a mysterious tunnel and sees that one day they would choose Him? Clearly not. This whole text is a reality that they would never choose Him. Does He look forward in time and see that Israel will be really great one day, make it to the NFL and buy God a house and a car? Definitely not. I love what Block has said. The source and motivation of divine love lies entirely in God Himself. God did not choose Israel or us because of who we would be, but because of who He would make us to be. The potential was not ours. It's always been His. And He knew what He was going to do. So He adopts and He causes to flourish. And He says, You grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And now, once again, she needs protection again. As a child, as a baby, she needed protection from the elements. Now, as a woman who's grown, she needs protection from those lovers who would not have her best interest at heart. So what does he do? He says in verse 8, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I love covenant, and as we know, marriage is covenant, and covenant is different from a contract because a contract is about protecting oneself. Covenant is about giving oneself. And so he enters into this covenant, and then he's going to offer extravagant and unrestrained love, a love that knows no bounds. Look at what he says. 
I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I believe this is exactly what Paul's thinking in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present her pure and spent washing her with the word. I think Paul's thinking of these pictures here, just as God does. What a faithful husband he is. He's bathing her with water. He anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. Shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. This is not love on a budget. This is extravagant, unrestrained love. This is not God saying, I'm holding back a little bit. No, this is God saying, I'm lavishing. I'm lavishing. I'm lavishing, right? He knows no bounds. He's going to put a ring on your nose. So there you go. For all those who may have a ring in your nose, you can say, God did it. (laughs) If you're still somehow under 18 and with your parents, don't drop that line yet. Just wait. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. God's love was extravagant. And maybe we look at that and we say, man, I wish that God would love me in that way. I wish God would just lavish that kind of love to experience all of those blessings. And my response to that is, He has. Here's how Paul described it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Oh friend, you've been lavished as well. You have had no love that's been withheld if you've been loved by God in Christ Jesus. He's extended every blessing. And the result of such love is always transformation. Transformation. Look at what happens at the end of verse 13. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. You see, God's love is always transforming. The gospel never fails to transform. I would submit to us that where there is no transformation, there is no gospel. The source of the transformation, he says it there at the end of verse 14, through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. Jerusalem's beauty was not innate. It was a gift graciously given to her. And same with us. She was a trophy of His grace. His love transforms. The best picture I know about this is my own father. One of my earliest memories is my dad having a knife and my mom and sister. My mom had a chair and pulled my sister behind her trying to protect my sister in our home in Texas where I was born. And I'm in the corner of the room screaming, no, daddy, no. I grew up in a home that was abusive. My mother's 70th birthday was at the beginning of August and she still has marks in places of wounds that my father did. I grew up in a verbally abusive home. I grew up in a home where I was exposed to things as a young child. I wish I had never seen. And that was my father. He cheated on my mother. He was arrested for stealing concrete at a place. He, he was almost convicted as a felon. And, uh, and this is the home that I grew up in. In uh, seventh grade, my parents got divorced. And I would have to go out to my father's house every other weekend, every other Wednesday night. 
I was in Bible drills, Psalm 56.3, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in thee. And I learned in junior high what it was like to rely on the Lord when there was no one else. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was no longer going to dad's house. I just couldn't take it. We would still see each other, but I just I couldn't handle the visitations. And I was at football practice, sophomore, and my coach came and said, your dad's had a heart attack. He's in ICU. And in the flesh, there was a part of me that said, let him die. But then the Holy Spirit breathed one question into my mind, 10th grader, and it was just simply this, how much have you been forgiven? So in the strength of Christ, as a high schooler, I went and reestablished a relationship with my father and memorized Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Pray also that a door may be opened, that I may proclaim Christ and this mystery, right, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, season with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. And for the next five years... I would pray for my father's salvation. I would pray that he would open a door that I could proclaim the mystery of Christ to him, that I would be wise in the way I act toward him, that my conversation would be full of grace. Listen, I loathe Christians whose conversation is not full of grace. How in the world is our conversation not full of grace? The Lord and his ultimate plans, I would be a junior at LSU, and I'd planned over the December break to go to my dad's office and intentionally just lay it all on the line. I, I came home for that Christmas break, and on December 18, 1997, my father called me, and he said, I want you to come over to my house, and he said, bring your Bible. And so I did, and I, I went over, and the Lord of his own accord worked in my father's life, and my dad said, I need Christ. I want you to lead me to Christ. Through tears, I led my father to Christ in his living room. A year and two months later, I'd be a senior at LSU, and my father's heart would rupture in his chest, and he would die. And the first funeral I ever preached was my dad's. And while during the visitation, two men approached me and one said, you don't know this, but for the past few months your father's been paying our utility bill. Another one came and said, your dad probably didn't tell you, but my wife had surgery a while back and your dad called on the phone and prayed with me about that surgery. You know why I was grateful for those men to offer those testimonies? It was the reminder that grace always transforms. And it was the reminder that though my dad was an adulterer and an abuser, those won't be the words that are spoken over him when the accuser ultimately finishes. For Christ will say, covered. Covered. So you see here in Ezekiel, God lavished love on them. And they were not the same. They were transformed indeed. Paul would say, all we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let me ask a question, seminarian. Do you look more like Jesus this year than you did last year? And is it primarily because you love Him more this year than you did last year? You keep looking intently into the Gospel and He keeps changing you day by day. Can our people see that as pastors... It's not degrees that change us, it's Jesus. Can they see that we're still being transformed and blown away and amazed that God would be so good to us and help us? The one comfort that I have is to hear a guy like John Piper say how slow sanctification is. That means you better time mine with a sundial. There's a word of hope, in there, but there's progress no matter how small, transforms, right? 
we see this. Well, here's the problem. Ingratitude toward God and pride in self inevitably lead to spiritual harlotry. Truth number three. Ingratitude toward God and pride in self inevitably lead to spiritual harlotry. So they were abhorred and abandoned, and then they were adopted and adorned. What's shocking is how verse 15 begins, but. How in the world does that happen? We're going to see in these next verses, they were adulterous because they had amnesia. There's your alliteration. See, it's rolling all through there. They were adulterous, right? But you trusted in your beauty. How is it that Israel suffered from amnesia so much and we liked them? They cross the Red Sea, yet somehow think that God can't provide food and water. They see him crush Pharaoh and his army, yet think he can't give them Canaan. They get into promised land and they pretend as if they forget everything that Moses taught them. They just keep forgetting and hear, uh, is it? What's caused it? Well, verse 15 says, here's what caused your adultery. You trusted in your beauty. And then in verse 22, you did not remember the days of your youth. You trusted in what you had been made rather than the one who made you. And you forgot how far you'd been brought. You forgot what had been done for you. And 15 through 22 are a picture of this religious adultery. And then 23 through at least 29 are this picture of political adultery that they're going to commit. Verse 15, it's graphic language. And the reason it's graphic is because it's grievous. God uses this language to say, this is how bad the picture is. Because you and I would be like, well, sin's not that bad. God says, no, it is. It's awful. It's adultery. Here's what you did. You trusted in your beauty, played the whore because of your renown, lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You... You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declared the Lord God. And watch this. You took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your horns, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. What had God ever done to deserve this? Nothing. God had done nothing but give good. God had done nothing but give good. But they trusted in what they'd been made rather than trusting in Him. They ran from a living God to a dead one. And they who had been abandoned by their parents slaughtered their children. How does that happen? They sacrificed their children in worships of gods that didn't exist. And here's a word. If you worship a God and you also have to pick that God up and move Him, He probably can do two things for you, jack and squat. So write that down. Let that change you forever. Any God that you have to pick up and move or open its little eyes probably can't do anything for you, right? Worse, as you get into 23, they begin to look for security in other places. You'll see in verse 26, you also played the whore with the Egyptians. You go on in verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians. 29, you multiplied your whoring also with the trading of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied god just asked a question how lovesick is your heart how do you keep chasing after these other people for security am i not trustworthy have i not been shown that i will keep you secure and the worst part is look at what happens in, in the end of verse 27 it says the philistines were ashamed of your lewd behavior the philistines were like oh snap 
look at these people. If ungodly people are ashamed of the actions of the godly people, the church is in trouble. There's no doubt about this. They're looking for security. And Jerusalem's not the only one. Pastor, sometimes you look for security in the ministry rather than in Christ. You look for security in the approval that your people will say, well, that was a really good sermon. I love what Goldsworthy said. Let him say he's a really great Savior instead. Security's not in Guidestone, I'll tell you that much. So here we are, and they're engaged in religious and political adultery, and it's awful. God uses this language to portray the depth so that you and I would not be fooled to think it's just not that big a deal. It's a big deal. Every sin is wounding. Every sin is looking for satisfaction and security somewhere else besides God. But don't miss this. You remember in high school when there was the girl who kept dating the guy that just wounded her over and over? How many of you remember that person? You've seen that person. That's what we are with the flesh, the world, and the devil when we keep giving our heart to the flesh and the world and devil and think they have our best interest at heart. All the flesh and the world and the devil want to do is rip your heart into shreds. God is the only one who can be trusted with our heart. So let us not look at Jerusalem and think what they've done is so strange and foreign when you and I do it all the time. We cheat on Him. We take what He's given us. And instead of using those for gospel purposes, we use them to satisfy our own cravings and desires. We're like the woman who asked her husband for money to go spend it on our lover of the world. And so this reality, I think, is a great picture of our heart. And the worst part is, he says in verse 32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. So he says, you know, most time prostitutes get paid. The difference is you paid them. You're so wretched. You're so lovesick. So truth number four, these last ones will come quickly. God is as passionate in His judgment as He is in His love. God is as passionate in His judgment as He is in love. And, and so how many of you, God has ever given you something you asked for only to realize you shouldn't have asked for that? Well, here's what God's going to do. Verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. He said, You want to expose yourself to them? I'll do it for you. I'll just gather them all and I'll expose you. And here he's going to talk about ultimately the discipline. But we need to know that discipline is always deserved. And God's response to them, he says, you know, you did this on my own, verse, on your own, verse 43, because you've not remembered the days of your youth, but you've enraged me with all these things. But God has a purpose in the discipline, and that purpose is seen in verse uh, 41. At the very end of 41, he says this, I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. Here's the beautiful thing about God. He saves us from ourselves. He intervenes and He says, I'm not going to let you keep doing it. I love you. I made a covenant. You may not be faithful, but I'm faithful. And if it takes this discipline, this is going to be the end result. You're going to stop playing the whore. You're going to stop paying these other people. Truth number five, our sin is more wretched than we care to acknowledge. Uh, 
the, the small part of this is, look in verse 46. Your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. If you're Jerusalem, this isn't a great comparison. Hey, you know who your family is? Samaria and Sodom. Drop that one, the next your sister is argument. You get in and see how that rolls. He says, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, but in a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. Please don't miss that. He just said, you know what? You made Sodom and Samaria look like they teach Sunday school. Now that's, that's something. That's an accomplishment there. And you know what that is? That is the depth and pit of depravity. And that's where this text could end. And there's some of you, even in ministry, that still think that you're not good enough. You would say, I know I'm here, I'm taking these classes, but God surely can't know all that I've really done. Or what I've really done is really awful. And there's this other shoe that's going to drop, and I'm really not going to be able to do ministry. Ezekiel 16 should show you nothing is hidden from him. He knows, and he knows the very depth of our depravity. Which, in our world, the reason why this text ends the way it does should stagger us. And this is the last truth, truth number six. Rather than abandon His people, God chooses to atone for them. Rather than abandon His people, God chooses to atone for them. In our day, at this point in the text, this is where irreconcilable differences usually come in. This is where a husband walks out, or this is where a divorce will enter. I think about Forrest Gump and Jenny. Remember them? Man, Forrest Gump was faithful to Jenny all his life, right? He was steadfast to her. But he could never change her. And you watch the sad weaving in and out as Jenny makes bad decision after bad decision. This is what I love about God. Unlike Forrest Gump, God's love changes us. His steadfast doesn't let us keep on being Jenny. He changes us. And so this is what he gets to at the end. Verse 62. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Watch this. When I atone for you for all that you've done, declares the Lord God. You see, they were abandoned and abhorred, and then they were adorned, and they were adopted, but they became adulterous because they had amnesia. And that's where you think that would end. And God says, no, we don't go back to where we started with abandonment. We end here with atonement. Do you know when he's going to do that? When I atone for you? It'll be, as Paul says in Romans 3, when he puts forward Christ as a propitiation for our sins. He sends his son. And I love what one has said. He keeps coming to us even our bloodly, even in our bloodly tawdriness and He keeps saying live. And in the end, He gives up His very life through the Son to make that just possible. Don't miss this. Here's what He's going to do to His Son. He's going to treat Jesus as if Jesus has been the harlot. He's going to treat Jesus as if Jesus has been the one worshiping other gods and sacrificing His children. He's going to treat Jesus as if Jesus looked somewhere besides the Father for security. Not only that, he's going to treat Jesus as if he was the one addicted to porn. He's going to treat Jesus as if he's the one who performed the abortion. He's going to treat Jesus 
And he's the one that keeps gossiping and coveting and is slothful. And Jesus was never a single one of those things. That's why it should always capture our breath. Fanny Crosby said, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And she just says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give Him the glory. Great things He has done. I'll never forget where I was on September 11th all those years ago and watching the towers fall. And I'll never forget hearing about Janelle Guzman. Janelle Guzman had been in one of the first build, the first tower that fell. And she became trapped in some rubble. All of her co-workers that had been around her were dead. She couldn't hear any of them. Her legs were crushed, but she could get her little hand up through a hole in the rubble. And her voice by the time she would come to them, wasn't very strong, could hardly get out any kind of measure of noise. But 27 hours after being trapped in that rubble and sticking her little hand up, someone grabbed her hand. His name was Paul. Janelle will always say she feels it was an angel because after she was out and went through all this, she never met Paul again. But Paul simply said, I've got you. And then Janelle Guzman has said that since then she's been on a mission to tell her story because she was saved. And I would say to us, may we never forget the day that Christ reached down and said, I've got you. And may we always be on a mission to tell the story. Because rather than abandoned, which we deserve, atoned. May the gospel always be fresh in us. You want to have a healthy church? Never get over the gospel. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Ezekiel 16 and all of its graphic language to see how grievous our sin really is. May all of us go away from a text like this and not be marveled that you disciplined your people. To be marveled that that was not the end of it. But the discipline had a purpose. And Father, may we who have seen Christ absorb your wrath on our behalf. May we never get over this and may it not become old to us. May we not be desensitized because we handle these truths each day in our classes. But Father, may the gospel always steal our breath. May your love be transforming of us. May people see that. Father, forgive us if we're using your gifts and squandering them on our own cravings and urges. Forgive us, Father, for trusting in the skills you've given us rather than in trusting Christ. Father, I pray that you would use us to be an image of you, for we don't image you any better than when we run to people who don't deserve it. May we run to those with the gospel, for we have been run to. It's in your name we pray. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, 
We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.